there is something about God's creative power that is profound. There's something when you look at the natural universe that grabs your gut, grabs your heart, grabs your imagination. I was walking out in the country, south of town, with one of our grandchildren a few weeks ago. We have ten grandchildren, and they, they have all been here in the last three weeks. We still have four here, but we had six of them under eight at our house for ten days. We're doing a remodel. And, uh, but Cameron Foth, who lives in Springfield, Missouri, is seven. And he and I have a tradition. Ever since he was small, he and I would go walking early in the morning. So I went and awakened him at 6.15. He was right up, got his hat on, and we took off. And we're walking out, and we're looking at the, at the gold and greens of the fields. You've got the alfalfa going. You've got the wheat that's been just harvested. You've got corn over on the left. You've got a couple of hot air balloons up there. And you've got the kind of the black purple of the mountains and the blue-brown of the irrigation chain. you got all of these colors going, and I, we're talking about a bunch of stuff. And finally I said, Kim, what do you think about God? And he said, he's big. <laughs> I said, I'm with you. I said, what, what color do you think he is? And i got to tell you, I've, I've never really thought about what color God was. I just came out. You know, I'm the kind of person who processes. I find out what I'm thinking even as I speak. How many of you, you identify with that? I just said, what color do you think? You know, it was a great revelation to me a few years ago when I found out God spoke Chinese. So I'm big into this. And I just said, what, you know, what do you, what color do you think? And he said, I don't know. I said, well, look at all these colors. Do you think he could be all of those? He said, yeah, sure. He's more than whatever we think he is, this God of ours. But where would one get such ideas? Well, I think the first three chapters of Genesis is a good place to start. I've been fascinated for some years with the first three chapters of Genesis because not only of the creative process, but just the way it describes the things that God does. Listen to how it reads in Genesis, the first chapter. We're just reading the first two verses and then the last verse of that chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the last verse, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. These words begin the train rolling in the creation of the cosmos. This, uh, you, you, you read that first chapter and you get the physical part of creation. You get cycles of life. You get Days and nights, you get seasons, you get germination of plants, you get sky and sea and light as a basis for it all. Some of you might remember, I, I really don't expect it, but back a number of months ago in January, I talked about light and that let there be light being the basis for the whole deal. That's all captured in the first chapter of Genesis. And then as you proceed through the first three chapters, you get thoughts like we just read, like he saw all that he had made. And it was good. Or this thought, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. He gives Adam and Eve resources. He gives them the Garden of Eden. He gives them some guidelines, some maintenance thoughts, and some prohibitions. And then he 
he speaks into and creates that interpersonal part, the creation of man, two flavors, male and female, and all the dynamics that go with that. In that process, he does something that's unique. Of course, everything he does is unique, but this particularly grabs my attention. In the next three weekends, these next three times, I want to speak out of these three chapters in Genesis. And uh, of the many pieces or themes that are there, I want to look at three main ones under a central theme. The theme is this, that whoever else God is, whatever else he is, he is the God who trusts us. He's the God who trusts us. You say, now, I thought it was supposed to be like the other way around. Aren't we supposed, he's the, he's the, the God, and we're supposed to trust him. Isn't that the deal? That is the deal. That's the way it works best. That's how life works best. And so we speak to that a lot here. We talk about trusting God and having faith and believing. That's the theme of this book, and it's the theme of our lives. should be the theme of our lives. needs to be the theme of our lives. But the fact is, it all started with God trusting us. And um, he trusted us in at least three ways. There are, there are numbers of others, but the three I want to speak to are, this morning I want to speak to how he trusts us with his power. Next week, I think, trusts us with his possessions. And thirdly, trusts us with persons, with people, with relationships. So he trusts us with, with his power and his presence. He trusts us with money. He trusts us with sexuality. He trusts us with all the dynamics that go on in, in human life. So in these three weeks, that's what I want to talk about. And he makes us, that word trust means that we are trustees. A trustee is a person, like some of you sit on boards, and these boards have what is called fiduciary responsibility. That is, if I have money, I give it to this group. The board has a responsibility to conserve that and to grow it and to make it something positive, not to go and waste it or invest it wrongly. And so God says, OK, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you relationship. I'm going to give you stuff. And I'm going to trust you to be a good steward of the things and the qualities that I give you along the way. So I never cease to be amazed. I got to tell you this. I never cease to be amazed at how things kind of come together. Um, I did not share these notes with either Pastor Derry or Pastor Rob, but in the last two weeks, Derry spoke two weeks ago on servanthood, and one of his points was that authentic servanthood comes out of authority. That is, when you have authority and you serve, that's a very powerful idea, very powerful, powerful observation. Last week, Rob talked about, in the Portraits of Jesus series, he talked about Jesus as the vine and we're the branches, and any power we get comes from him. And I hadn't showed this, you know, I hadn't shown this to them. It almost makes you think that like the Lord's up to something here and wanting us to hear something. And I'm not betting on it, but I'm just guessing that that might be. And the problem with it is that I have to ask myself the question first. What is it, both, that the Lord's trying to say to you over these last three weeks about power or authority? So here we go. Between that, the first verse of Genesis and the 31st verse, you have all of this dynamic power. What a show. You got light, you got color, you got sea, you got sky, you got people formed, you got animals formed. You get, would it be fair to say that each of us here wants to be powerful in some way? 
at the very least, you don't want to be weak, right? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, God, I just, I just like to be totally powerless today. Just, just make me insipid and weak. That's what I want to be. Nobody does that. I say I'm powerless, and God says, I know. But the point is this, that, that the idea of having confidence or having power is something that's essential to me as a human being. My point one would be this. The power authority question is the key question in life. It's the pivotal question in life. If we can figure out where the power comes from, if we can figure out how to have some of that, if we can get that piece, then the rest of life can move along. I, I have a friend who's some years older than I who told me this some years ago in D.C. He said, Dick, if young people, and I'll speak, you folks who consider yourself a bit older, you can just, you don't have to listen to this, but he said, if, if young people early on would select two or three people who are older than they are, who they trust, and would give them authority, if you will, to speak into their lives, and when any major decision came up, they would always reference those two or three people. Say, here's the deal. This is what's going on. What do you think? He said, those young people's lives would be spared a lot of pain. I have spent a lot of my life trying to figure out stuff by myself. But even though I may not have loads of authority, I do have some control. And when I give some of it that way, in, in sort of an investment sense, it comes back to me in ways that are powerful. But Jesus was plagued by this question. It was an insistent question. His whole ministry. Where did he get his power? Where did he get his authority? That was the key question that the people listening to him focused in on. You can read it in Luke, the 20th chapter, the first two verses. This is just before Jesus goes to the cross. He's going from Bethany, this little town outside into Jerusalem every day. And he's teaching in the temple and they keep challenging him. The other religious types or the religious types keep challenging him. And they challenge him in Luke 20. It reads this way. One day. As he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? See, they knew he had power. And we'll see that there are two different words, one for authority and one for power. But they knew he, had, they knew he could do stuff. He, they'd seen him heal people. And he spoke with certain language, and it rattled them. The people were saying, he speaks with such authority, not like those guys over there. That, that frustrated them. But if once we decide who has the power in our lives, who has the authority, and where decisions are made, everything else flows out of that. We can proceed, we adjust, we accommodate, we can buy in, we can buy out, we can do whatever we want. But we need to understand where does the power and authority come from. Now, you have come on a Sunday morning. 10 o'clock service, here you are, and you're, you know, clearly your authority, I believe, just looking at you, just sensing you gave this time to come, would be found in the one that was represented in the creation video, that in, in that God. But there are places on the edges for me where I work at trying to hang on to, I don't know how you are, but I try to, you know, I say, well, I could do that piece. You don't need to help. I got that, you know. But establishing who's in charge is huge. Have you ever been on the phone? Well, let me rephrase that. You have been on the phone with somebody 
in some place, some other place. It could be in Minneapolis, could be in Pascagoula, could be in Bombay, and you're trying to get some glitch worked out on your computer. You have something wrong with it. How many are, you understand what I'm saying here? And, you, and you've, you've said it four or five different ways, and the person on the other end is reading off the page. They're saying, this is page 30. Hang on just a minute. Hold that thought. And it's okay. I, I want people to be reading off the page. That's good. That's fine. But at some point, after about 17 minutes of this, I say, excuse me, son, ma'am, um, could I speak to your supervisor? Could, I, could, could you give me somebody who has a little more knowledge or has the capacity to make a decision? That's not a put down to the person who doesn't have that authority. It's just saying, I need to get to the place where there's authority. I've shared with you the story of being in the... 7.1 Richter scale earthquake in California 20 years ago now, 1989. It was the Loma Prieta earthquake. And how rattling, no pun intended, how rattling that was when everything's moving and there's no place to run. And Even the perception of power sometimes can be a help. I was away from campus. I was the president of this college. And it took me half an hour to get back before the highway patrol closed the highway. And I drove onto campus and all the students, hundreds of them, were out milling around on the campus. Nobody wants to be in the buildings. And I pulled up in front of the chapel and this young girl, probably a sophomore, runs up to me and said, Oh, President Foth, I'm so glad you're here. Everything's going to be okay now. And I'm going, you know, I can sign diplomas. I can do the paycheck. But I don't, I don't do the earthquake stuff. I don't, that's... That's beyond my kin. That's, that's more than I can do. But just the perception. Maybe she thought, you know, if we're going to die, let's go together. Maybe that was the piece she was thinking. But there are several words for power used in the Bible for authority and power, maybe half a dozen, but two of them are predominant. One word, and I don't know 1,800 Greek words, but I know these two. One of them is exousia. It means authority. It means authority. And the other one is dunamis, from which we get dynamite, that means power. One is the authority of the office, and the other is power to act. One is the authority of the office, and the other is power to act. Now, certain offices, certain positions have authority inherent in them. Teacher has authority inherent in it. Now, some of you are teachers, and you say, well, I'd like you to come tell my students that because, you know. But it used to be, at the very least, that teacher carried a lot of authority, and I, I think still, still do. Pastor has some authority to it. Judge has some authority to it. Senator has some authority to it. Parent has authority to it. It was interesting yesterday, they were talking about the health care debates that are going on in town hall meetings on one of the channels, and the commentator said, you know, some of the folks in the town hall meetings are really going after these congressmen and senators. They're really coming at them. Now, the president's going to be in Grand Junction and a couple other places tomorrow. I don't think they're going to come at him quite as strongly because of his office, because he's the president. They won't they may feel it, but they won't come at him in exactly the same way. I, th I found that to be a very interesting statement, and I think it speaks to the point. That there is power in an office that you, you can be the same person, but if you don't hold that position, you don't have the same authority. The other is the power to act. Uh, this little cap here represents my first real experience that I can remember with authority and power combined. When I was two months past four, 
my parents enrolled me in a British boarding school in the hills of South India when we they were missionaries there and it was too hot in the plains and so 7,000 feet up in the tea plantations we went to a school called Hebron School and um, it was a girls school and they let little boys go there till they were nine and then you figured out those are girls and they ship you out to some other place <laughs> but this was the cap I wore when I was four and I, I was very cute little short pants little tie and this little cap and and we found it just the other day, going through boxes, unpacking boxes. There it was. But my experience with authority in this school, this was British colonial days. This was 1947. And, and they didn't break any smart mouth stuff. They, they didn't bridge any, any smart mouth. I mean, they just wouldn't take it. These, these were the guidelines. And they had all of the authority and all of the power. And this symbolizes the head matron at that school. You did not want to cross the head matron at that school. Now, that's kind of in a negative sense. But for a police officer, for example, that's an authority position. The badge represents the power of the city or the community behind him or her. That's the authority symbol. That's the exousia. The dunamis, the power to act, is found in the baton, in the mace, and in the weapon. Because of this authority... He can use this or she can use this legally. Here is the God who comes along and says to us, what I'd like to do is to share my power with you. I'm the creator of this whole thing and I have all the power. I got all the marbles, but I'd like to share that with you so we can do this creative, redemptive thing together. So the question is, who's in charge? As simple and profound as that. When I make that decision... I build from there. So my question is, is my authority, for example, found in family traditions? Those of you who are married, you know that family traditions come into play very early. You get married and you have that first Christmas and you realize that there are some traditions there. Not always, but a lot of times there are traditions and you you thought you were marrying her and you were really marrying her family. You thought you were just marrying the cute, hunky guy and you were marrying his whole clan. You didn't know he had 84 cousins and there they are, you know, and it comes to Christmas. And the key question is not is it Jesus birthday, but do we open the presents on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning? How many know that's true? That's it. You know, these are the traditions. They come floating in and we say, where did that come from? Maybe it's maybe it's a political philosophy. We say, you know, if we can. If we can get the political stuff worked out, that gives us a basis to work from. And that's true at some level, but not ultimately. Or maybe it's a religious set of traditions or belief systems. Some of us were raised with catechisms. Catechism is a teaching tool. It could be Roman Catholic. It could be Greek Orthodox. It could be Presbyterian. It could be the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I kind of like catechisms because you have questions and you learn answers. doesn't mean it makes it real, but it means that you learn the stuff, But if I put my trust or if I buy into that system as my authority, it's not enough. Nothing works in a society or a nation unless we know who's in charge. Nothing works at my house unless the children know that we parents are together and we're in charge. We together are in charge. Just a simple thought here. If there is a creator of the universe, and I believe there is, and if he is compassionate and all-knowing and generous and forgiving, I say he wins. 
So rather than me trying to do his job, why don't I just say, I give up, I give in, I let it go, I sign on, I take the ride. I'm going to go with my authority as one-on-one with the creator of the universe. Because what he says is, both, I'm going to create you, then I'm going to share some stuff, and let's do this together. Point two, a creator makes originals and gives them power. A creator makes originals and gives them Now, some of you here are inventive types. Some of you wake up in the middle of the night and you got an idea for the very best what's it that could be made. And some of you have even sold that stuff and you, you start companies and do all sorts of things. I would submit that the creator, that the inventor, has a way of going at things that is powerful and unique that the idea the dream the design that's his deal they know what they have in mind they know how things work they know how they're supposed to work now listen to this passage from Luke that has to do with the storm on the sea Jesus is in the boat with him he's fallen asleep And the disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They had gotten the peace that he was a good teacher. They had gotten the peace that he spoke profoundly. What they hadn't gotten was that he was the one who spoke all this into existence, And so when he stood up and said, waves, calm down, be quiet, he had that capacity because he was the creator. He knew about the elements, what he had designed them for. I would submit to you that he creates originals of everything, that even the critters are originals, the animals. We have have lots of collected toys at our house. We're grandparents. We've, we have toys from our kids and we have to, and Ruth has gone to garage sales and yard sales and all kinds of stuff in Craigslist. We, we have tanks. We have front loaders. We've got end loaders. We got Barbies. We have Kins. We have GI Joes. We have dress up clothes. We have slip inside. We got all that stuff at our house. And we had these six grandkids under the age of eight at our house. And they were into that stuff. They were working with all that. We have thousands of pieces of Legos. And you discover it when you get up in the night and step on one. <laughs> Nothing wakes you up like stepping on a Lego, like at 3.30. But the last couple of weeks, the kids have been there, and it was all working for us the first half day until they discovered two toads in a window well. you got to know that two toads in a window well trump a Barbie and a Ken and a G.I. Joe like nothing, just like that. And all of a sudden, they're in the window wells, and they're hanging on to them, and they're throwing them in the air. And Grandma said, Will, don't throw it up in the air. He said, I only did it once. Yeah, but, you know, it had a heart attack when it went up. It's, it's, and they named them Chunk Face and Little Ben. And they're building houses. They got Tupperware swimming pools. They got, they're working with them, you know. And then another little toad showed up, and they decided maybe Little Ben wasn't Little Ben, but was Sophia. So now we've got Chunk Face and Sophia and the little one. And you say, what are you talking about toads in Sunday morning service? Well, Mattel can make 
toys and Parker Brothers can make games and I can do stuff, but I can't make a toad like that's original. I can't do that. This bread box is an original. All of us are creative. We've been given that power. We create stuff. This was this was made by our son, Chris, when he was in a wood shop in junior high or high school or something. And Ruth keeps it and it's in the house. And I said, don't you want to get a different bread box? She said, no. I said, it'd really be good if we got it. She said, no, we aren't. And I said, we're not. No, I just. <laughs> it's important to know where the authority is in certain areas. And I, I really like the bread box and it's an original, but it's not like original that God makes. And kids intuitively, I think, get that, that the dynamic live things. And I, I say to people, I used to take people in D.C. to the monuments. Beautiful stuff, the Lincoln Memorial and the World War II Memorial and, and stuff that's profound. It kind of takes your breath away when you see it, but it's not Long's Peak. It's not the Mississippi River. It's the best we can do as human beings, and it's terrific. But it's not quite the same as the other originals. And here is the one who makes those originals who says, I'd like you just to walk with me, and I'll share my power with you. Sometimes some of my authority, but always my power. And I have made you an original. Each person sitting here is unique, one of a kind, and you say, I know that, I've heard. But being an original is really a pretty powerful deal. You see, if, if I believe that I'm an original, then it makes no sense for me to compare myself with anybody else, with any other original. You say, well, what's better? Is that Rembrandt better than that Van Gogh? Is that, is that Michelangelo piece better than that Leonardo da Vinci piece? Well, you can't. It's apples and oranges and grapes and pears. You can't, it doesn't make any sense. And the, the enemy of our souls comes along and says, why don't you just spend most of your lives comparing yourselves to one another and waste yourself that way? And God comes along and says, you bear my imprint, and I made you an original, one of a kind. There is no one out of 6.6 .6 billion people that has my intent and my design like you. No one. Now, you know, there's kind of an authority. There's an authority and power that comes with being an original. There's power and authority that comes with being an original. Now, I got to tell you, I don't really like it when people do this when they're up here, but I just can't stand it. I got to do it. Why don't you just turn to somebody near you and say, hi, I'm an original. Just go ahead. Just, just do that, you know. Yeah. Some of you are like me. You're saying, I do not want to do this. This is dumb. Some of you wives are rolling your eyes saying, boy, that's all he needs. That's all. He needs. <laughs> As one of his originals, he shares some authority with me. Listen to how it reads in John 1. He was in the world, John 1, 10 to 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own. That literally is his own things. But his own people did not receive him. Yet to all who received him... To those who believed in his name, who trusted him, he gave the right. The word is exousia, authority. He gave authority to become children of God. Not just by a husband's design or by mutual consent or whatever, but children of God. 
So we get authority when we say, God, I want to give all that I know of me to all that I am of you. I believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. He says, I give you the authority card. I give you the right to become one of the family. You get in. And as they continue to walk, as we continue to walk with him, he says, now, let me give you some some more power for the purposes that I'm about. And in Acts one, six through eight, the disciples have been waiting for Jesus to restore the kingdom because their image of the kingdom was King David's reign a thousand years before. And they want to they want to have the power of a political kingdom. And this is what they say. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has sent by his own exousia, his own authority. But you will receive power, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Authority is all the fathers. He can dispense it as he wills. And when he gives power, he gives it with a purpose. I want your lives to be witness. And the the word witness comes from from the root word martyr, that we lay down our lives in some way, that we are vulnerable in ways that is attractive and meaningful to people. So, you know, if, if I, in fact, have power, if I'm sitting here, I'm following Jesus, you have resident power. You have it. It's like having a Ferrari in your garage. It's very cool to have a Ferrari in your garage. I understand. That's good. But I think there's nothing quite like driving a Ferrari. And he says, I'm giving you power, not just to keep it in the garage, but to drive that sucker, to to move out, to be original where you are. And in the way you express yourself and in the kinds of decisions you make, that brings with it a kind of authority and attractiveness and power that attracts people to you. When you pray for someone... That takes power. When you listen empathetically to someone and identify with their challenges and walk with them, that's powerful. When you serve, as Pastor Derry said two weeks ago, and you don't need recognition, you don't need a parade or a plaque or anything. When you just serve, that's power. That's raw power. And that's attractive to others. If you have a heart that's set on following Jesus, you have it. It's a matter of expressing it going forward. Point three, God uses his power to create and to redeem. He uses his power to create and to redeem. He's the model. Because you are original, because you bear his image, you have the power to create things and atmosphere and so forth. And in that way, you become an agent of redemption to other people. I love the story, many of you have heard it, of the little boy who um, made a sailboat, built a sailboat. He got the keel just right. He painted it the right colors. He got the sails just right. He did the articulated scribing on the side. He got, you know, he just, and he would go every day and play with it in the little stream near his backyard. And uh, one spring day, he went out to play with it, and the current was up, and it caught his boat and swept it downstream. And he couldn't find it. He ran after it. He couldn't get it. And he looked for days up and down the bank, see if he could find his little, his little boat. He couldn't find it. And some weeks later, he was in the town near him, and he walked by a pawn shop. And in the window was his boat. And he walked into the store and said, Mister, you found my boat. That's my boat. 
And he said, son, I didn't find it. Somebody else found it. I just bought it from him and it's for sale there. He said, but it's my boat. I made that boat. He said, son, I, I can appreciate that, but it's 12 bucks. I, you know, it's $12 and I paid that. I need to, paid whatever. I need to get it. The little boy was disconsolate. He went home and he worked every way he knew to get money. He got a quarter here and 50 cents there and a dollar there. And when he got enough money, he got back to town as fast as he could, and he walked into that store, and he walked up to the owner. And he put his money on the counter, and he said, I want my boat. The man gave him the boat, and the little boy clasped it to his chest. And as he walked out the door, he was heard to say, little boat, you're mine. You're twice mine. Once I made you, and once I bought you, and you're mine. And Jesus looks at us and says, once I made you, once I bought you, and you're mine. He creates us. He redeems us. In between, there's all kinds of junk. But we're his. I got a call on Thursday morning from a friend in California that I've known for 46 years. I met him when Ruth and I were six weeks married and drove from California to Wheaton College in Illinois for graduate school. He was a pastor of a little church. We drove in, and we've known them over the years. And when I was president of a college, he was president of a college. And he's, he's been a great counselor to me. He's a few years older, very wise in a lot of ways. And his wife has been battling cancer the last five years. And on Wednesday, they went to the doctor, the oncologist. And when he was done with his, in, his uh, testing, he turned to her, Barbara, and said, Barbara, we have to make a major shift from cure to comfort. You have to go into hospice tomorrow. And it was, a, it was a blow, as you can imagine. And uh, she just looked at him and said, Doctor, may I hug you? He had been her doctor for five years, done everything he knew. But he's not a creator of origin. He, he can only do secondary, as good as he is. She hugged him and thanked him. He said, I'm always up for hugs. She thanked him for all of his care. And the oncology nurse who had administered all the chemo was standing there and was just weeping. And she hugged her and said, just stay here a couple of minutes before you leave. And when they wheeled her out in the wheelchair, the hall was lined with nurses and with doctors who just touched her and thanked her. And several people got down on their knees by her wheelchair and said, your presence here the last five years, the way you have handled things, has changed my life. Barbara, this morning at 12.55 a.m., went home to be with Jesus. But along the way, she created an atmosphere that was redemptive for the people around her. And all of us can do that. Not only can we do it, we are designed to do it. We have been given power to do it, creative, redemptive power. Would you stand with me as we close our time? Father, I thank you for these dear friends who have come this day to lift their hearts to you, to be open to your words in song and in spoken word. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us both creators and redeemers in partnership with you. We are originals from the land of the Holy Spirit. And I don't get that exactly, except I believe it's true. For those who stand here this morning, who feel weak or not powerful or in need, 
We pray your special touch, even as I pray here. For the one facing a difficult situation at work or in their home. Help them to walk in confidence in your spirit, even this week as they leave here. For the one who has never said, I want to sign on. I want to have the authority to be a child of God. Just in this moment, let them lift their hearts to you and say, Lord, I don't know who you are completely, but I believe what I've heard. Take all that I am and make me one of your family. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And this day, in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, the prayer team is here. For those of you who want to come and have a time of prayer or just a time together, please do that. Just go now, you originals. Get out there and be original, will you? God bless.